And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Father, like Paul, like the psalmist, we tremble at your word. We come in total dependence on you, for without you we can do nothing. Thank you for the perspicuity of Scripture, that it is understandable. But thank you, too, you gave us a helper, a teacher, who helps us one stage after the next to grow up in Christ and understand more and more of your holy truth. Thank you that the Bible was the very seed by which you said we were born again, for you said we're not born of corruptible seed like with our human parents, but with incorruptible seed through the living and abiding Word of God. Father, thank you for your Word that is like milk, which we are commanded to long for like newborn babes that we might grow in respect to our salvation. Thank you in a day of great confusion that as the people of God, we need not be confused that you have given us answers in this, your holy book. And so we pray with Peter that we would gird up our minds for action, that you would help us this morning as we study the scripture, that we might be strengthened this week in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I pray for every brother or sister in Christ, whether they are seven or 77, that if they know you, that this week they would look for an opportunity to reach out to some lost soul. You've told us to do that. You've commanded it. May we be obedient children. Now, Father, help me as I unfold your word. Please come and fill me and anoint me and use me. And may the Spirit of God speak, and I ask it in your holy name. Amen. Take God's Word this morning, would you? Revelation chapter 17. If you are joining us for the first time, we have been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great epistle. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. And we've been learning that the Bible teaches that at the end of time, there is coming a political leader who will rule the world. Revelation 13 and verse 7, speaking of this last day's dispensation, there is one who will have authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And his empire will be the most extensive empire that the world has ever, ever known. He'll rule with a dynamism of sorts that will captivate and deceive. He will have demonic sources behind him, and he will literally sway multiplied billions. He will astound the world with absolute cleverness, and he will be able to do something that no world leader has ever done before. He will be able to bring all the nations of the world together under one master empire. He is called the beast he is called the Antichrist, and he comes in the place of the anointed one of God's Christ. Now, throughout time, religion has had a powerful effect on people. The apostles were willing to die for what they believed. 
much like a Muslim is willing to die for what he believes, though what he believes is a lie and what the apostles believed is the truth. And there is a power in religion that when brought together with politics, we're going to see in this 17th chapter, it will serve as a religious glue that will bring the nations of the world together. Now, concerning the first coming of the Lord Jesus, there were over 300 prophecies in every single prediction made hundreds of years in advance between 1,500 and 400 years before Jesus left heaven and took on our humanity. Every single one of those prophecies was fulfilled. God has a 1,000 batting average. And we cannot afford to be ignorant in this day concerning biblical prophecy. I know sometimes pastors are afraid to teach it. And I get all the time from people, my pastor never teaches the prophetic portion of Scripture. One-third of the Bible is prophecy. And if you're going to teach the whole Word of God, you must teach prophecy. And there's coming a day, it's called the day of the Lord, that will mimic a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday for the Jew, and so he observes the Sabbath. And we, I believe, are in the shadows of the day of the Lord, and someday after the church is raptured, it will get very dark for a seven-year period, but then the S-O-N, who's likened to the S-U-N, will come back at the second coming, and he will rule for a thousand years, and then we will see at the end of that thousand-year reign, it will get dark once again. And then Jesus will wrap up time as we know it. But you need not be ignorant of prophecy. Dads, you need to know what the Scripture says because you need to be able to prepare your children because if they can't stand up on this day, they will fold up. And there is so much that is going against them. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Listen, I would be depressed if I looked at this world around me and did not understand it through the lens of Scripture, because I've read the end of this story, I know who's going to win. Now, here in the 17th chapter, we are introduced to a woman, and she represents a religious system, the one world religion that is coming. Now, I know that sometimes, you know, again, people will blow themselves up for the cause. Well, she's going to present a cause to the world that the nations of this world are going to embrace. Now, this morning, we're going to look at just a handful of verses, but to get us started, I want us to read the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 17. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, you should come to meet the pastor. You need a Bible in this church. I know some of you come from churches, you don't need to bring a Bible. Look, you'll get so much more out of the sermon if you don't just look at the screens, but you have a copy in your lap. Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality." And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which is wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, for the benefit of, of us all, let me bring you into the context of this 17th chapter. This slide reminds you, as we studied in the opening message, that there are three major divisions to the Revelation. John is instructed by Christ to write about the things which you have seen. That's the past. That's chapter 1. That's all about the glorified Christ. Then he is told to write the things which are. That's the present. That's the seven churches that he addresses in chapters 2 and 3. It's all about the church. And then he turns a corner when he comes to chapter 4 and verse 1, and he writes about the things that will take place, metatata, after these things. It deals with the consummation of the age. And so in chapters 4, all the way through the end of the book, you're in the futuristic sixth section of the Revelation. 4-1 is a turning point. Remember the outline, the last two words in Greek, metatata, after these things. When you come to 4-1, the first two words in Greek, metatata, after these things. The last two words in that verse, metatata, after these things. You can't miss it. You know you're in the futuristic section when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1. A door is opened up in heaven and the church is brought in. And so you do not see the church mentioned again until the 19th chapter when Jesus brings her back in glory. Now, we've seen that starting in chapter 6, God begins to unfold judgments upon the earth during this time called the Great Tribulation. They come in the form of seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Uh, there are uh, these judgments that Jesus said are like a woman pregnant with a baby. The pregnancy starts, she's aware something's happening. The baby begins to grow, and one day, labor pains start. And they begin to uh, increase in frequency and intensity. I think we're probably in pre-labor in the day that we're living in. There's so much that is happening that has just blown my mind away. And God is trying to get the earth's attention. He's trying to get her to wake up to give her one last chance to repent. So here's an overall diagram of what we've studied thus far. Seven seals and the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. We saw the seal, the seven sealed document was the title deed to the earth that Christ was worthy to receive. The seals can only be seen one at a time, but when the seventh seal is open, we discovered you're able to see all seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet, therefore, you can see all seven bowls. And when that seventh seal is open, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. It happens right because of an event that triggers it. It's called the abomination of desolation. 
When the Antichrist walks into a rebuilt temple there on the Temple Mount that will be finished, has to be finished by the middle of the tribulation, may not even start until after the church is raptured. God only knows. But it will be done there, and by the middle of the tribulation, he will go in and he will defile it. Now, you can see that God breaks, as this chart reminds us, the tribulation into two even halves, 42 months, 1260 days, times, times, and half a time, three and a half years, repeated over and over and over again. You can't miss it. And the first half of the tribulation, you see a religious harlot. That's what we're studying here in chapter 17. And the second half of the tribulation, you have the religion of the Antichrist. Now, we read in verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Now, we learned one of the seven angels, there are seven angels who are introduced to us in chapter 15, each angel has a bull or a plague, and one of the seven angels is asking John to come and see the judgment of the great harlot. And she is described in verse 5 as the mother of harlots. Now, remember, uh, he has put us in slow motion here for a little period of time. God has finished the bowl judgments, and when you come to the last bowl, Christ comes back. Then he pauses and he shows us what has been happening during this seven-year period. He will look back and he will look ahead. And so in the 17th chapter, he shows us this place called Mystery Babylon. It's a real place, but it also represents a religious system. And then in chapter 18, as we're going to study, he shows us economic Babylon, a political entity that has come together. Now, Babylon is a pretty important place in the Bible. Remember, there are 404 verses in the Revelation, and when you think about those 404 verses, 44 of them are about Babylon. That's 11% of the book. So obviously, this is important to God. In fact, there are two cities that are highlighted throughout the Bible more than any other two cities. One is Babylon, the other is Jerusalem. That's mentioned some 800 times in the Bible. We saw the first mention last time of Jerusalem in Genesis 14. We will see the last mention in, Genesis, in Revelation 21. And Jerusalem is a special place in the mind and heart of God. Remember what we read in Psalm 132, for the Lord has chosen Zion. Zion is one of the many names for Jerusalem in the Bible. God has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It's not by accident that the only city on the earth that you are commanded to pray for its peace is the city of Jerusalem. And when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you're praying for the Prince of Peace to come back who will establish it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then the promise, may they prosper who love you. It is a foolish country, it is a foolish nation that will go against Jerusalem. God said through the chronicler, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. In Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. In Psalm 87.3, identifies the city of God as being Jerusalem. Nehemiah, Isaiah, Matthew all call it the holy city. And by extension, we refer to Israel often as the Holy Land. Why is Jerusalem the holy city? 
because it was there that God the Son ministered there in the temple. It was in the city of Jerusalem that he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin. He died there. He was buried there. He was raised from the dead there. He ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem, and it is to that city that he will come again and and bring judgment. In Ezekiel 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations, land around her. And so as you look on a map, you see that Jerusalem is a unique geographical spot that is centered around three major continents. And God views Jerusalem when He looks from heaven as the center of the world. No wonder that when God someday is going to burn this earth with fire and make a brand new earth in brand new heavens, the new Jerusalem that is the Father's house, that if you die today, that's where you will go if you know Jesus, that city will literally come down and will become the capital city on the planet earth and a new heaven and a new earth. So we'll have the city and a brand new earth to enjoy. We call the whole ball of wax heaven. Now, some think Washington is an important city or Moscow or Delhi or Paris. I want to tell you there is no more important city on the face of the earth than the city of God. But the devil is never satisfied with the ways of God. He's the great usurper. So he tries to replace during the tribulation the city of God with a city of man. And it's called Babylon, mentioned some 300 times in the Bible. We studied its roots last week in Genesis 10 and 11 when we looked at the first two verses in this study. And it would be very helpful if you were not here to download the app, go to the App Store, type in Search the Scriptures. Only one app will come up, searchthescriptures.org, our website. Get the phone app and listen to last week's message because God there in Genesis in the book of beginnings gives us in kernel form how we got this institution that is religious and political in nature. It goes all the way back to Nimrod there in Genesis 10. Now, again, here in verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, the chapter and verse divisions are helpful. It helped us to get to the spot that we're at today. But remember, they're artificial. So don't miss the flow of thought. At the end of chapter 16, in verses 17 through 21... God sends judgment on this place called Babylon. He shakes the nations, the cities of the world with an earthquake, but he highlights in Revelation 16, 19, Babylon. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And so Babylon the great now becomes the theme of chapters 17 and 18. And God remembered this city out of all the cities in the world in his wrath. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. The great harlot, this woman. Now, there are four prominent women that are underscored for us in the book of Revelation. We studied Jezebel, the church at Thyatira. She's an important woman. We studied one called Israel, who's termed and defined for us in the 12th chapter as the woman. Uh, we've uh, studied the bride, or we're going to study the bride of Christ in chapter 19, who is also a woman. But then there is this woman in chapter 17 who is deemed the great harlot. 
Now, remember what he said already of her in, in Revelation 14. Let me read it to you. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And so God describes what I will call the devil's church as a harlot. He describes her with sexually charged terms. In fact, the word immorality is the Greek word porneia, and we get our word pornography from it. Because God is comparing her to a spiritual apostate. And God will often use those kinds of terms to describe spiritual unfaithfulness. He did so, for instance, with Israel, who were, of course, his people. They are described as his bride in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 3. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel... I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went away as a harlot also. Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, they were spiritually unfaithful to God, and so he likens them to laying with a harlot. Hosea, the prophet, says, my people consult their wooden idol." and their diviner's wand wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from God. The psalmist says in Psalm 108, thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. And so the apostle James says in the fourth chapter, to the church that is also likened to God's bride, you adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When the world's system, not its people, but its system and its form of beliefs become yours, you are making yourself an enemy of God. And when a Christian begins to embrace the ways of the world, he is committing spiritual adultery. Right now, there are thousands of religions in the world. Most of them have very little agreement. But under one banner, there is coming a man who will be able to glue them all together into a one-world religion, and it will happen after the rapture. Look again in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, come here. And I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Notice, she is described as sitting on many waters. You say, what does that mean? The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Remember, this book in the opening verse was communicated. In the margin, it says it was signified. It was signified to you. God gave the revelation in signs, but most of the signs are interpreted for you. And once you understand what the sign means, you literally believe what it stands for. You say, well, what is the many waters? I don't have to wonder. I'll give you a preview. Look at verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Religious Babylon is going to have the attention of the world. Now, we just cracked the door last week to verse 2. So we're going to start there this morning. And this, uh, today I want you to, ha- to put there in your outline five considerations about this false religion, 
Babylon, this false religious system known as Babylon. First, I want us to think about the perversion of this false religion. First, something about the perversion of this false religion. We are told in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth, mystery Babylon, with whom the kings of the earth, this woman, likened to a harlot, committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now, it's not by accident that the kings of the earth, the prime ministers and the presidents and the literal kings, will come under her sway. There is going to be a union of church and state like the world has never seen before. There will be no wall of separation, and the glue that will hold all these political entities together, most of whom cannot get along today, will be a religious system. And so we will see in chapter 17 that Babylon, mystery Babylon, is described as a religious system. And when we come to chapter 18, it will be described as a political system. And so this great harlot, like a slick seductress, will lure people in. Again, this is the term. You've played the harlot, Ezekiel 16, 26. Jeremiah, you've laid down as a harlot. Psalm 106, he said of Israel, you played the harlot in the deeds that you committed. And again in James 4, you adulteress. Friendship with the world is like spiritual adultery. Now, again, it's not by accident that God does not use the term adultery in describing this religious entity. He uses the word porneia. The word porneia typically can refer to any kind of sexual immorality, but it can also refer to sex between two people who are not married. Moikeia typically is used in the Bible, adultery, to describe extramarital sex, sex outside of your marriage relationship. God describes Israel as committing adultery. Why? Because they are his people. God describes Christians in James 4 as committing adultery. Why? Because they are his people. But God describes this religious entity as committing porneia, fornication, immorality, because they are not his people and never have been. This great harlot in verse 1 is going to be able to bring the kings of the world together the, rel- the glue that will be used is religion. Now, I want to tell you the seeds are being sown in our day. The average kid who goes off to college today sits on a university campus where he is brainwashed. He is brainwashed with a worldview that is so antithetical to the Word of God. The Bible is made fun of. The morals in Scripture are laughed at. Kids are told today that they can't know what is truth, or truth can be whatever you want it to be. And this is why if you send your child to that university, he better have some spiritual steel in his spine. One, he better know Christ, and two, he better know his Bible, or he will not be able to stand strong. And so the seeds against truth are being sown, and they're being sown not just in the campus realm, but in the religious realm. Here's a picture of John Paul II. 
A major shift began to take place in Roman Catholicism in hoping to syncretize the religions of the world under this pope, John Paul II. And so he garnered a meeting together in 1986 where he called religious leaders from around the world to Assisi. Many of you know Francis of Assisi. And there present were snake worshipers, fire worshipers, spiritists, animists, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, North American witch doctors. And he said this in his proclamation, I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming all of you for our world day of prayer in this town of Assisi. Let me begin by thanking you from the bottom of my heart for the openness and goodwill with which you have accepted my invitation to pray to Assisi. The coming together of so many religious leaders to pray isn't in itself an invitation to the world to become aware that there exists another dimension of peace and another way of promoting it, which is not the result of negotiations, political compromises, or economic bargaining. It is the result of prayer, which in the diversity of religions expresses a relationship with a supreme power that surpasses our human capacities alone. And on that day, John Paul II had all of them praying, and he said they were all praying to the same God, and that their prayers would create a spiritual energy that could bring the world together. And so he allowed the Dalai Lama of Tibet to put Buddha there on the Roman Catholic altar in the church at Assisi, who had his monks... Uh, worshiping next to him and all these Shintoists ringing their bells and chanting. Now listen, there is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Christ Jesus. You can only pray through the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he said they're all praying to their different gods or to the God, a supreme being. Here's a picture of Pope the 16th. Pope Benedict XVI. In 2011, for the 25th anniversary, he brought them back to Assisi. Here's another picture. He gathered over 300 religious leaders from across the world. And of course, on that day, he told them that they all needed to be committed to their own religious faith, quote unquote. There is only one truth, there is only one faith and it is the faith in the Bible. And so to tell them to be committed to their own religious faith is sheer heresy and a denial. And he had them all pray. So to whom were the Muslims praying, if not the God of Muhammad? To whom were the animists praying, if not to their idols? How is it conceivable that a pope could invite the nations of the world together under this religious umbrella and commit such an act of sheer blasphemy. Now, here's a, a picture of Pope Francis last year, and here's a proclamation that he made. Let me read it to you. He said, most people in the world identify to be believers. This should lead us to dialogue among the world's religions. We should not stop praying for it and collaborating with those who think differently. Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. But there is one certainty that we all have, and that is that we are children of God. Here's a picture of Francis in Myanmar 18 months ago. 
He said at that place where he gathered all these Buddhists together in a Buddhist temple, he said, all those here in Myanmar live in accord with the religious traditions of Buddhism. And he acknowledged that through the teachings of the Buddha and the dedicated witness of so many monks that, quote, the people of this land have been formed in the values of patience, tolerance, and respect for life, as well as a spiritually attentive to and deep respect for the environment. He's a green pulp. He worships the environment. He worships Mother Nature, I think, more than Father God. But here he is, he's he's telling these Buddhists, what he should have told them as a man of God is that you are worshiping a false god, and this false god is leading you directly into hell. But he didn't say that. He said to the monks in that day, quote, the great challenge of our day is to help people to be open to the transcendent and to realize that we cannot be isolated from one another. Then he said, if we are to be united as in our purpose, we need to surmount all forms of misunderstanding, intolerance, prejudice, and hatred. Here's Francis eight months ago in the Vatican. Here on this day, he met with Sikhs and Hindus, Jains and Buddhists, and he said that they all needed to thank God because religious leaders can actively foster a culture of encounter by offering an example of fruitful dialogue and by working together in the service of life, human dignity, and in the care of creation. There he is, the green pope. And this pope urged the participants to come together that they might, quote, advance in knowledge of one another and in esteem for their respective spiritual traditions, which are nothing but heresies, and offer the world a witness to the values of justice, peace, and defiance of human dignity. He said that we should esteem the different spiritual traditions. No, we shouldn't. Paul on Mars Hill said, you are worshiping a false god. You are worshiping a god that is no god at all. Here's a video he put together at Christmas. Watch it. La mayor parte de los habitantes del planeta se declaran creyentes. Esto debería provocar un diálogo entre las religiones. No debemos dejar de orar por él y colaborar con quienes piensan distinto. Confío en Buda. Creo en Dios. Creo en Jesucristo. Creo en Dios. Allah. Muchos piensan distinto. Sienten distinto, buscan a Dios o encuentran a Dios de diversa manera. En esta multitud, en este abanico de religiones, hay una sola certeza que tenemos para todos. Todos somos hijos de Dios. Creo en el amor. Creo en el amor. Creo en el amor. Confío en vos para difundir mi petición de este mes, que el diálogo sincero entre hombres y mujeres de diversas religiones conlleve frutos de paz y justicia. Confío en tu oración. Are we all children of God, as the Pope said? No, as many as received him, being Jesus. 
To them he gave the right, and to them only, the power, the right, the exousia to become children of God, that is, to those who believe in his name. We are not all children of God. The Bible clearly delineates you are either of your father, the devil, or you are in the kingdom of light where Christ is your Lord. There is no in-between. Now, here's a picture just 20 days ago taken where the Pope signed a document with the Grand Ayman al-Azhar. He's kind of the head of the Muslim religion in the world. And the document was entitled, The Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together, in which they both agreed to these words and signed it. The first and most important aim of religions is to believe in God, to honor Him, and to invite all men and women to believe that this universe depends on a God who governs it. The pluralism and the diversity of religions are willed by God in His wisdom through which He created human beings. Are the religions of the world that the Bible says lead you straight into hell willed by God Almighty? No, they are not. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I hope you're going to believe in Jesus and not the Pope. Now, you need to come back next time because we're going to examine in more detail Mystery Babylon. But for now, let me just say there's just one city in the world that will meet the qualifications that are described in this 17th chapter, and it is the city of Rome the headquarters of Roman Catholicism, and it will become the headquarters, the Bible teaches, of a one-world religious entity. I'm not saying the Pope will head it up, but I am telling you the place where it will happen, and I am saying to you this morning that the very seeds for this kind of thinking are being sown in the world in which we live in. Now, I have no desire to attack Roman Catholics. I am not a Catholic basher. But if I knew you had cancer and I had the cure and I withheld it from you, I would be less than loving and less than honorable and less than just. And if I know that you are believing something that is going to lead you straight into hell, into an eternity without God, I would be less than loving, less than righteous, less than kind, not to speak to you the truth. And we are going to see that the people who are doing the bashing in our day are not evangelicals as we are accused of doing, but it is the Roman church who are bashing Bible-believing Christians with 100 anathemas stated at the Council of Trent, reaffirmed at Vatican I and Vatican II that are all aimed against those who believe the Bible as the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, there's coming a day when the religions of the world and the dream of these three popes are going to be fulfilled in Mystery Babylon. There's going to be a one-world religion. You say, well, how will it happen? And how will it happen so fast? Well, the seeds are being sown in our day, but understand after the rapture takes place, all the true Christians will be gone off the earth, and there will be a vacuum that will be filled very, very quickly. And so God uses these sexually charged words to describe the kind of religion we just saw the Pope portray, and the kind of religion that John writes of those who dwell on the earth who are made to drink of the wine of her immorality. How many worship and religious systems do you think will carry on after the rapture without missing a beat? The answer is all of them. 
because all who are dwelling on the earth are going to drink into this false system. Liberal Protestant churches will keep going. They will keep going. The Roman church will continue to have their masses, and they won't even have to hide their sex scandals that have now reached Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, 42 states in the United States, Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, all the way from bishops to the highest seats, cardinals in the world. Now, look, evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians have been immoral as well at times. But when you see the focus and the direction, not for a decade or five decades, but for a millennia and a half that is wicked, then you are looking at the fruit of a false religious entity. The Mormons won't miss a beat. They'll keep going, as will those in Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Zoroasterism. Why? Because the salt of the earth, God's people will be gone. The light of the world that dispels darkness, that gives the world truth, that will be gone. All of the preachers, all of the missionaries, all of the evangelists will initially all be gone. And with lightning speed, the nations of the world will coalesce together in this perverted religious system. So that's the perversion of this false religion. We'll look at it in more detail as we work through the chapter. Secondly, let's think about the power, the power of this false religion. Look now in your Bibles at verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Sound familiar? It should. Hold your finger here. Go back to Revelation chapter 13 for just a moment. Revelation chapter 13. Do you remember? He uses very similar terminology. I hope you remember when we studied the beast in the chapter 13, I did four sermons on it, uh, that the Antichrist is pictured as a beast. We know him best as the Antichrist. It's one of 30 titles, but the most common title in the Revelation is he's simply called the beast, and he's in cahoots with Satan, 13.1. And the dragon, that's the devil, the Bible tells us that a few verses later, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns, and seven heads, and on his horns were 10 diadems. This verse is just like Revelation 17 and verse 3, and he's using symbolic language here in order to tell us what kind of a man and the nature of the kingdom that he is going to have. And in both texts, he's described as a beast, and he's described as having seven heads. Now, do we know what the seven heads are? Yep, back here in Revelation 17, look down at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Those seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, next time we'll drill deep down into that verse. What does it mean by this place, this city, this literal place that has seven mountains or seven hills? It's going to be a very important place for the Antichrist. In 17.3 also speaks of him having 10 horns. And if you remember when we studied the prophet Daniel, Daniel uses horns to describe the power and authority of a king. And again, I don't have to wonder in verse 12 of this chapter, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not received, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they have authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So we'll look at that next week. But here's the point. Antichrist is going to rise to power. 
Now, we know where in the world the Antichrist is going to come. How do we know that? We've already studied it in the Revelation, and we studied it in Daniel. He is going to come from the revived Roman Empire. He's going to come from Western Europe. There will be a 10-nation coalition that will be in place by the time of the tribulation. And out of those 10 nations is going to come an 11th nation. Remember what Daniel said, while I was contemplating the horns, the 10 horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. So there's this 10-nation pack, three of which have prominence. And along comes this little horn, as he's called. He starts small. He's seemingly insignificant. He's able to uproot three of these in the 10 nation, and then all 10 kings are going to give him allegiance. And on his head, we're told in both chapters 13 and 17, were his blasphemous names. That is, everything that he stands for is against the living God. These kings of the earth are going to get in bed with this religious system that will be worldwide, and they will commit spiritual immorality. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So these ten nations are going to come together, and they're going to give their full allegiance to this eleventh one, the little horn called the Antichrist. And so this woman and this coming Antichrist are going to work together, and they're going to lead the nations of the world. Satan is a great imitator, just as Christ has his bride. Even so, the Antichrist has his bride, his woman, so to speak. Again in verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. This harlot This spiritual whore, this woman, will be wed to the beast, and notice the beast is not riding her. She is riding the beast. She gets all of her strength from the Antichrist. How so? Because the Antichrist is a great deceiver. He is a miracle worker, and he will have his false Christ at work. Jesus said during this time, false Christ. And false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to us mislead, if possible, even the elect. And he will be able to control all the nations of the world. We've already studied this in Revelation 13, remember? And he, the beast to whom the woman will ride, he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. There's going to be a new world order, and if you're not a member of it, you are sunk, you are in big trouble. You're a young mother, you need diapers, you need formula, you go to the store, you realize you can buy neither because you do not have the mark of the beast in which to purchase. You need gas for your car, you can't buy anything at the gas station. Why? Because you have not taken the mark of the beast yet. You're a diabetic, you have medical issues, you need your meds, you go to the pharmacy, they won't let you buy it until you get the mark of the beast. It's cold, your electricity has been turned off, it's 25 degrees outside, but you cannot get the heat turned back on until you take the mark of the beast. And so the church and the state will be wed together like it has never happened in all of human history. 
Now, I don't think it is by accident. Many of you have had euros in your pockets before. Here's a picture of the euro dollar. And I find it interesting that the emblem is a woman riding a beast because it is out of this section of the world that the prophet Daniel tells us that this 10-nation entity is going to come. It will come with perversion, and it will come with power. Look now at verse 4 as we consider the prosperity of the false religion. Not only is there perversion and power, there's great prosperity, riches behind it. We're told in verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Not only does she have power, she, she has prosperity. And so he describes her in magnificent terms. She's clothed in purple and in scarlet. Listen, like a prostitute who adorns herself to lure some man this woman, with all of her prosperity and glitter, will attract the nations of the world. She's in purple. That is the single most important dye color in the first century. Only kings typically wore a purple garment. Why? Because to create purple, you got it from the matter root. And of course, it just grew in one area. We studied it when we studied the church at Thyatira. Or you could get it from the shellfish murex. And it would take so much just to create one drop of purple. In fact, it was said by Josephus in that day that a pound, to put it in our terms, a pound of gold would buy one ounce of purple. And so it was with great mockery and at his own expense that Herod put a purple robe on Jesus and said, here, look at your king. But this woman will have great power. Notice she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And when we come to the new Jerusalem, those are just trinkets in that place. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Now, while this religion appears healthy and good and prosperous, God says it is corrupt in its chalice, so to speak. It is full of abominations, of unclean things, and of immorality. It's very much like the Roman Catholic Church in our day. She, like a great prostitute, sits on many waters. It's the biggest so-called Christian religion in the world. And yet it is a religion that is filled with immoral priests, tens of thousands, bishops, cardinals that have been raping little boys in ruining lives. In her hand is a cup of gold full of abominations and of unclean things. That brings us finally to, or fourthly, to the predecessor of this false religion. Verse 5 teaches us something about the predecessor of this false religion. Verse 5 reminds us of the source of this coming religious mystery Babylon. And on her forehead, a name was written. Some of your translations say mystery Babylon or a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the, and of the abominations on the earth. 
Now, I've taught you before, typically, when you see something that is in all capital letters, your mind should immediately think what? Old Testament. This is an Old Testament quotation. And you can normally go out into the margin and say, oh, yeah, that's where it's from. And you can go back and read it in its original context. That's true of 99.999% of the time in the New American Standard, there, or really in any Bible, depending on how they set aside Old Testament quotes. This is an exception to the rule. The exception is when a title is given. Whether it's here and the other place where it's done is the title that is written over the cross of the Lord Jesus. In mockery, Pilate wrote, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So here in verse 5, we're told something about the predecessor of this false religion. This one world religion goes back to Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Remember that last week? We went back and we studied Babylon the Great. Now, it's called Babel in some of your English Bibles, Babylon in other of your English Bibles. It's the same Hebrew word. One is the shortened version. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, every single time it's called Babylon. And if you ask a Jew today, is the Tower of Babel the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon, they'll tell you the latter. So all man-made religion, and this being the epitome and the climax of it all in this coming seven-year period, it all goes back to the Tower of Babel, the mother of all religions, where man built based on what he thought, not on what God had revealed, a religious system to worship the zodiac, the skies, instead of the living God who made them. And of course, in all false religion... The basic premise is man earns a right to somehow worship God. It's the exact opposite of the Bible. Of the oysteros, I asked one gentleman, I said, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? 100%. I said, fantastic. Why are you 100%? Quote, I am a very good person. I wasn't laughing. I was saddened. But I had a chance to share Christ with him. Now, I said, I grew up just like you did as a Roman Catholic. And I said, you have to decide whether the Bible is true. And the Bible says that you don't need a boost from underneath. You need a birth from above. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And that's not something you can work for. It is something you humbly receive. So here's Nimrod back in Genesis 11. And he created this tower of sorts. And, of course, that's what's being referenced here. And on her forehead, a name was written. On her forehead. Now, that's very illustrative because, remember, she's described this religious system in sexual terms like a prostitute. She's likened as a harlot. And every harlot in the first century wore a headband. That's how she advertised. That's how you remembered her when you wanted to come back and see that prostitute again. Now, remember, again, in the opening verse of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it. He signified it, the margin said. He signified it. In other words, the revelation is given through these symbols and these signs, and most of the symbols and signs are defined for us within the Scripture itself. 
So Babylon is pictured, as we'll study this chapter, as a false religious system. It's going to be prevalent in the first three and a half years. Then the Antichrist, when he's got all the nations of the world glued together through this false religion, he's going to say, you can't be a Buddhist and a Muslim and a Catholic and a liberal Protestant. You're going to worship me and me only. And it will all change. Now, the headquarters of this one world religion is Babylon. There's only two places in the Bible that are reckoned as Babylon. One is a place called Iraq, and the other where there is a code name, and we'll study it next week, and there's only one city in all the world that will meet its criteria, and it is the city of Rome. Now, you need to come back for next week. Now, finally, let's look at the persecution of this false religion. Beyond its perversion, its power, its prosperity, its predecessor, let's think about the persecution of this false religion. We are told now in verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. She martyred God's people. And with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now, verse 6 describes this harlot as being drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And that's what's going to happen during the tribulation. The church is gone. God raises up 144,000 Jews, two witnesses, an eternal angel that will pre- an angel that will preach the gospel in the sky. And those who have never heard the gospel before will be saved. And those who are saved, what happens? They'll have their head cut off. See, that's so barbaric. That's what he will do, just like the Muslims are doing, just like he did with those 22 Christians on that beach in Egypt. Confess Allah. No, we will not. Off goes your head, and that will happen to millions and millions and millions of people. You say, well, thank God I'm not planning to be here because I'm saved and I'm going to be raptured. Thank God if you know Christ and you are saved. But I want to tell you, you need to prepare your children and your grandchildren because we are living in the shadows of the tribulation and persecution against God's people are growing. Not to mention the promises, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So John is giving a a vision of this coming persecution, and he sees this woman and this murdering entity drunk with the blood of God's people, and he says, I wondered greatly. He's just blown away, which is where we'll pick it up next time. Now, let's talk about how are we going to apply this to our lives today. Let me suggest three applications as I close our time. Number one, God sees all false religion as an abomination. Look, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome or the head of some Protestant denomination. You never sanction what God Almighty calls evil. And if you do, then you are showing your true colors. God sees all false religion as an abomination. In verse 4, this one false world religion is full of abominations. And this woman is likened to a harlot And on her forehead, she advertises her harlotry. Now, what is an abomination? It's not good. Whenever God speaks of an abomination of Scripture, He speaks of something that He absolutely detests. 
So for instance, in Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Or in Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. I couldn't help but read that this week and think about our two governors in this United States of America. Oh, it's your birthday. Happy birthday. How evil. Those are 21st century Herods. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. These things are an abomination then, and they are today. Listen to what God said, speaking of idolatry in Ezekiel's day. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts and turned away from, which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Listen, America is being judged. We are being judged with illicit heterosexuality. Romans 1 teaches that, and we are being judged with perverted homosexuality. In, in this nation, we have politicians and preachers that say this is a good thing. God is giving this nation and this world over to a depraved mind. And so one organization mailed out to private schools across the country, and we received one at Community Bible Church Christian Academy, a book entitled How to Have a Happy Life by L. Ron Hubbard, who is the founder of a cult known as the Church of Scientology. And in it, he tells all these young high school students and junior high kids, it's okay to have sex as long as it's with one committed partner. Here's one committed Christian blogger, well-known across the blogosphere. She writes, imagine thinking sunlight was sinful. Your bedroom is in the basement. You go out with friends, but only at night. You keep your blinds drawn. Vitamin D deficiency is worming its way into your bones, and your depression has gotten worse. You have low energy, and some days you can barely get out of bed. You miss picnics and feeding the ducks at the pond and walking for ice cream and watching oak trees move in the wind. Imagine being convinced that something healthy and sacred and life-giving was sinful. And then imagine that you have to trying to give up that thing. And then she goes on, and she compares it to being gay. Imagine how the heart of God breaks for God's children when they carry the weight of sin that isn't sin. Imagine how the heart of God breaks for us when we reject holy and healthy and beautiful gifts that God is longing to give us because we have gotten it stuck into our beautiful, scared souls that those gifts will kill us. And then mixing biblical truth and error, she continues, the LGBTQ community has too much to give to the world for us to waste away praying against a self that is God-created and a God-blessed and God-ordained thing that is holy and good. I just hope you know that believing it is okay to be gay or trans or queer does not mean giving up the idea of following Jesus on the hard road. You can have Jesus 
and you can have your wickedness. The Fellowship of Christian Athletes was rejected in a local school. Why? Because they define marriage as between a man and a woman. And of course, it must have been difficult for the headmaster who has a transgender son. Listen, false religion is an abomination. Second, be cautious of linking arms with so-called Christians who compromise God's truth, God's Word in the name of unity. Be careful. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. It's articular. From the body of truth that we call the Word of God, the Bible. And God says this will happen in latter days. There's the last days that began at Pentecost. And the term last days in the Old Testament can refer to the very end of the days, the last of the last days. But latter days always refers to that time sequence right before the second coming of Messiah to the earth. Not the rapture, but the second coming. And God reminds us that in latter times, in latter days... People will fall away from the faith. There's coming an apostasy. And the seeds for that apostasy, for that one world religion, are being sown in the day that we live in. Jesus said, and at that time, many will fall away. Scandalizo. We get our word scandalous from it. They'll scandalizo and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Remember when Paul wrote the church at Thessalonica, they thought, well, we must have misunderstood Paul. We thought the rapture came before the day of the Lord, but obviously we misunderstood him because we're in the day of the Lord, and the rapture mustn't come first. And Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come the day of the Lord that he just mentioned in verse 2 that follows after the rapture unless the apostasy. It's articular, not just apostasy. We've always had apostasy, but there was coming the apostasy where all of the religions of the world will basically spit in the face of God Almighty and His Holy Bible and God the Son, and they will embrace this one world religion unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction. Listen, the battle and our day is raging like never before. I see it in so many different avenues. Jen Hatmaker, she was a cash cow for Lifeway Books. Ten years ago, some women came to me, you think we could do Jen Hatmaker? I said, absolutely not. I would never let her material in this church. And I know I took a little heat for it. Of course, last year, she came out in favor of same-sex marriage, and even Lifeway Books had to drop her. Those are seeds for apostasy, and I see women's ministry in dangerous women like Beth Moore, dangerous people, and so many women and, and men who are blinded, and I don't always blame them because they are untaught and their pastors are not feeding them, and I don't blame these women who came to me because they were new Christians. World Vision decided that their employees could work for them and not necessarily believe marriage between, be between a man and a woman. 
And when that hit the press, evangelicals came unglued. And so the board who made the decision reversed the decision. Why? Because they were going to lose millions of dollars. I wouldn't give them a dime. They were driven by money and not by truth and principle. I'll give to Compassion International or some other reputable organization, but certainly not World Vision. A Christian organization came to me three or four months ago, wanted to use our fellowship hall to have their banquet. I said, well, let me just ask a couple questions, you know. We, we want to work together as a body of Christ. And as it turns out, they have women on their staff who are teaching high school men. I said, no, what you're doing is you're setting a model that is antithetical to the Word of God. They're children. No, they're not. If they're 18 years old and they can defend this nation, they're not kids. And they're in transition and they should be learning biblical principles. And these women should not be dismissing the high and holy role that God has placed on motherhood. But you see, the church in America is untaught. That's why a leader in the church, a pastor, Titus 1.9, is to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Listen, unity and brotherhood, it sounds great. Oh, let's all join arms, Jesus said, by our love for one another, they will know us. And we have distorted a verse, taken it out of its context, totally abused it. He's talking about local assemblies like this, the fact that we get along and we love one another. That's how an unbelieving world, he is not saying you link with every apostate across the county and across the country, and that that's how you show your love for each other. And so that blogger that I quoted describes herself in her blog, an Atlanta-based writer, itinerant chaplain, an amateur mystic, she lives and writes in the in-between places of queerness, loving Jesus, and rediscovering the Bible after fundamentalism. See, that's what they call me, a fundamentalist. And most people are ignorant of church history and the origins of the term where it came at the turn of the 20th century when liberalism had walked in the front door and some Christians said, here are seven non-negotiables that we must believe and embrace. These are fundamentals of the faith. And if someone holds to these, we can link arms. But you see, you can love Jesus and live wickedly. Third and finally, the only way to guard yourself from apostasy is to become a Christian. I want you to know that the opposite of truth is not error, it is sin. And Jesus plainly taught that people will not embrace the truth because they are first choosing to embrace sin. We've been learning all the way through the Revelation, and as this chapter illustrates, when a person will not believe the truth, it's not because of an intellectual problem. It's always a moral problem. You can be totally intellectually honest and study the historicity of Christianity and be convinced this is a unique book. But if you love the darkness more than the light, you'll come up with 1,000 reasons why you cannot follow Jesus Christ. And if you go to hell with a hard, unbelieving heart, it will not be God's fault. It will be yours. 
And if you love your sin and want to embrace what God calls wrong, yeah, you'll go to that college campus. Come on out. We're going to sleep with women tonight. Come on out. We're going to smoke weed. Come on out. We're going to get wasted. Come on out. We're going to sleep with the people of the same sex. And you'll believe it if that's what you want. And that's what the one world religion is going to offer the people of this world. Listen, one of these days, maybe sooner than we think, the rapture of the church will take place. And if it happens, I promise you, everyone within the sound of my voice, if you don't know Christ, it will be too late for you. You will not be able to believe. Only those who have not heard the gospel before. Listen, today is the day of salvation. You say, how do I get it? One, you must see your sin for what it is. It's evil. We're all sinners. You can't hold on to sin and receive forgiveness. You must repent. You must change your mind what God says about sin. You must see the cross as God's substitutionary payment, that Jesus died in your place, bearing your wrath, proving it when he was raised from the dead. And then by faith, not by works, by simple trust, you give your life to Jesus. You trust in his death and resurrection to save you and to make you a new person. Have you done that? You can do it today. Tomorrow may be too late for someone. Now, Holy Father... I pray for every dad in this room, every grandfather, every mom, every grandmother, even those who don't have children, but you've called them to be disciples, and you've called them to teach all that Christ has taught. Help us to guard our hearts from which flow the issues of life. Help us, Holy Father, to put our mind in this book for our thoughts to be renewed. Help us not to have a babyfied approach to the Word of God, but to have a hunger by which we will dig deeply into the truth of your Word. We know we live in evil days, but thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That just as Noah could raise a godly heritage in the midst of a wicked world, so you promise us as parents... I pray, Father, for someone who's here, they may be seven, they may be 77, but they've never asked Jesus to save them. Thank you that the gift of God is eternal life. Thank you that gifts are not earned, but humbly received. Help someone today to take you at your word, for you promised whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Help someone, our Father, today to say, Lord Jesus, I come to you with my sin. I ask you to forgive it and to change me and to save me through your cross. Lord Jesus, save me. And give them the courage, whether they are here or in Graniteville or in Grays or in Bluffton, to make it public. Help someone, Father, here who knows you and loves you but needs a church home to take their stance today. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.